So let's just dive right in uh, to where we left off the last time Pastor Melody shared with us last week uh, about these two beautiful healings of these two women, uh, two daughters of Israel, the woman who'd been afflicted with this suffering for 12 years, and then the 12-year-old daughter of the synagogue ruler uh, whom Jesus raised to life from death. So we're now in chapter six, and we're gonna be looking at two sections today. We kind of kind of take them individually, but they do relate to one another. There's a message there as we consider these two passages together. And uh, really it's Mark six, one through six, and the second section is Mark six, seven to 13, if you have a Bible. Or uh, you can use, if you're watching at uh, nine o'clock with us, you can click on the link for the Bible and, and read that text. And so let's just dig in. Let's read this text from Mark, uh, reading first verses one to six of chapter six. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could do, not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Once again, we witness the incredible skill that Mark has at telling these stories for maximum impact. A lot happens in this small portion of text. And this passage, it's amazing, it begins so hopefully. It says that Jesus left where he had been healing this young girl, raising her to life. It says he went to his hometown. He was accompanied by his disciples. And so the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. What a wonderful beginning to this passage. It seems like the birds are singing, the sun is shining and all this good. Welcome home, Jesus. A hometown arrival with his family and his friends, his neighbors, he's got his closest companions with him. He's invited to speak, he's a special guest at the synagogue that day. And it seems to have gone over pretty well. It says many were amazed, success. But what is amazing that Mark does now, there's a sudden twist in the story and a completely different picture emerges. And it kind of takes us aback. This, the plot just changes and it puts us in a place of surprise. Like, what, what the, what's happening? So Mark tells us now, after this wonderful beginning, that the people start asking all sorts of questions. They seem confused. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom? What are these remarkable miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Mary's son, brother of James, and his sisters are here with us. And it says they took offense at him. They were amazed. And then suddenly, very suddenly, they took offense at him. Isn't that how often people can be so flighty and changeable? I love how the late Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation. He says, in the next breath, they were cutting him down. He's just a carpenter, Mary's boy. We've known him since he was a kid. We know his brothers, James, Justus, Jude, and Simon, and his sisters. Who does he think he is? Why the bad reception? Why the sudden change? What happened here? Well, what they're witnessing from this man Jesus in their town, this man Jesus, it seems totally out of sync with the person that they think they know, this person that grew up among them 
and, and some, what he is doing now seems completely removed from any semblance of what they had understood to be normal about this man or his character, etc. And, and it's characterized by Marcus three areas of his life which, which, with which they are familiar. And they are his occupation, his education, and his family. So they knew that he was a carpenter. All the time that they knew him, he was a carpenter and somewhat a menial job. Some early commentators in the early church thought that he was someone who made plows and things like that, just this kind of repetitive work. Not like today, we have some very skilled workers of wood. This is kind of a basic laborer, uh, uneducated, a man who likely had no education at all and from a relatively poor family. Nothing special as far as the neighbors are concerned. You know, don't we so often do that with people? Uh, you know, something I try never to ask someone when I first meet them, and it's kind of a practice of mine to avoid doing this, is what do you do? I think so many times people ask that, or where did you go to school? Or uh, where do you live? Or some other questions such as that. And I think it's easy when we do that to just form a quick impression of someone and maybe prejudge who they are and actually miss the depths of who the person is, not what they do or where they're from, uh, but who the person is is and that's so much an important thing as we consider other people because what is so much more important than what they do or where they're from is who they are and we can unfortunately begin a relationship with some unintended prejudgment that would affect our ability to know these people if the first thing we learn about someone is how they make their living or who their family is or where they live and we're, we're so quick sometimes to pigeonhole people and therefore we can actually miss something deeper of their potential and their power and actually how they might be coming alongside us and be exactly what we need. And we can kind of miss seeing that for what is too clear about these other aspects of who they are. And, and so they're doing this with Jesus. And the, the worst, the tragic thing is that as they do this, he's a carpenter, uneducated, we know his family. Yeah, we got it figured out. Is that in Jesus, uh, the potential that he truly had had the power to transform these people's lives, but they miss it, it seems, because of their expectations or their preconceptions. As far as these people are concerned, Jesus, really, it's once a lowly carpenter, always a lowly carpenter. And that was kind of the rhythm of, of life in those days, pretty much. Whatever you did, your father probably did it and your grandfather probably did it also. It was a pretty static kind of professional life and your place in society was pretty much fixed. It would be very hard for people to understand someone to actually change. And so well, let's think about how we might apply this. How can we bring this uh, into the current day, into our lives? Well, Jesus said before leaving his hometown, before he left these words, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own town. I think this seems like a first century version of saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And it's always had been that way through the Old Testament. God would send prophets to the people of Israel and they would be prophets who were born out of uh, the nation itself. And he, they would come and they would call them to difficult things, to repentance and to change. And here, it seems something similar is happening. Uh, Jesus has been sent to his people and the ones who are most familiar with him are the ones who are most willing perhaps to miss it and to prejudge from their preconceptions and to miss the incredible newness of this life.
that is in Jesus. What is particularly sad about this story is that the ones who are closest in relationship to Jesus, closest in relationship to him, it seems that the closer in the concentric circles get to familiarity with him, the harder it is for them to exercise faith, to break out of their perspectives and see him differently. And instead they become offended by him and and then consequently they miss so much because it tells us that Jesus seems to be unable to work powerfully amongst such unbelief. The Gospel of John says this about Jesus. He says uh, in, in the early in the Gospel of John that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own. And this is not just talking about Jesus coming to his family or his town, but more broadly to the whole nation. And, and even more broadly and, and, and supremely than that, God coming to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And they did not accept or receive him and therefore they missed it. You know, we saw this earlier in Mark, the story uh, you might recall that we talked about when Jesus' mothers and brothers came to forcibly take him home with them because they thought he had lost his mind. They came to the place and they could barely get in. Uh, and, and Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Uh, the ones who, who are obedient, who follow me, are my mother and my sisters and my brothers. So it seems, and he was surrounded by these people who were not his immediate family, but he's kind of showing them that there's something, if you want to be in that relationship, you've got to see something more than what you are familiar with. So complete strangers are following Jesus, but his own family have been missing it completely. Complete strangers are drawn to him. They have no preconceptions. They see with their eyes, hear with their ears, feel with their hearts, and they're engaging and they're responding, but his own family seem incapable of understanding and stepping beyond what they already know and and receiving what is new. And I think this is a real danger for the church, that the church misses the Jesus that actually is. And I say, when I say is, it's like Jesus said, I am. It's the eternally is always creative and always moving and transforming and challenging. And the church misses the Jesus that that is, in that broad sense, because of the Jesus that they think they understand, the one they have in a box. That we have Jesus conformed to our preferences and perspectives and therefore, as it was in that town in Nazareth, in that place, his challenges to us appear strange to our ears or even offensive and we resist them because we are familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt and this can be a problem for the church when we think we've got it all figured out. And so it's a danger for the church and one of the worst things is we understand the church to be a vehicle whereby the gospel and the kingdom come to a community through us, then a danger like this for the church is a danger for everyone else who comes in contact with the church. That had really been the problem through the whole of the Old Testament when God's people were continually called to to be a a center where people would come to the knowledge of the living God and so often they would hold it for themselves, they would refuse to go and they would become so inward looking and it was their God, their God. You know, it seems that these people are casting Jesus in their own image. They're like, he's one of us. It's another story in Luke of a, of a very similar time. I'm not sure if these things happened very closely in maybe those two synagogues or different times, but it's the same kind of story. Jesus comes to his hometown, he goes to the synagogue, but in that story, things get even worse. It's in Luke chapter four, verses 14 to 30. And I would encourage you to read it because it's a powerful and, and really challenging story. And what happens is Jesus stands up in the synagogue 
And he talks about, he takes Isaiah and he says, you know, I have come to proclaim the good news, etc., and, and cap, set the captives free and, and, and good news for the poor, etc. And everyone's really happy about that because they think it's about them. They're like, wow, yeah, you're here for us. But then he starts talking about Gentiles and saying that, 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 that essentially Gentiles are invited into the kingdom of God. And then the people get really upset about it. And it seems that there's some ideology there that he is, he is triggering, he's pressing up against here. And... Uh, we don't know what Jesus said in the synagogue in this story. What did he say? We don't know. We only know that the people were pretty upset about it and they could not receive it. And it seemed that really they couldn't receive it because they didn't expect him to ever say anything like what he was saying. And they had their too many pre preconceptions of what that would, might be. You know, this is the third and final mention of Mark in Mark of Jesus teaching officially in the synagogue. It's the third and final mention in Mark of Jesus officially teaching in the synagogue, and that should make us sad um, because he's, he's basically leaving that place, that official place of teaching and religion, and he's moving out into the streets. The, one of the things that occurs often in the gospel is that Jesus says things like, how long will I put up with you? It seems like there is a limit to his, his patience, that he's not going to stick with this through this unbelief uh, for, forever but uh, is actually going, going to now move out and spread the word in the streets away from uh, the synagogue. And I think to myself, uh, are we too familiar with Jesus? Have we got him in a box? Do we think that he's on our side? There's a saying that uh, Anne Lamott, uh, one of her books said, you can safely assume that you've created Jesus in your own image when it turns out that he hates all the same people that you do. And that's, that's quite a powerful statement. You know, will God do this with the American church if we don't let him challenge us and convict us and change us? The saddest thing in this text is at the end when he says, Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And I think partially he would be amazed because they had everything. They had the heritage, they had the history, they had the prophets, they had the synagogue, they had the scriptures, they had God's favor. God's continual forgiveness as when they rebelled, he would turn, he would forgive them and he would heal their land. And he was amazed that they did not have faith to step forward into this new thing that he was doing, that God himself was doing. Let's read the second section and see what that teaches us. So then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a, except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The contrast between these two episodes is striking. In the first story, we see presumption and unbelief and inertia. And Jesus leaves, amazed at their lack of faith, and he leaves. In the second story, it's such a different picture. We see faith and decision and power and movement and Jesus sends in the first presumption, unbelief and inertia and Jesus leaves second faith, decision, power and movement and Jesus sends. 
we see here this contrast between a contrast between people moving from unbelief and offense to belief and action. I just want to first of all point this out that this is not a model for how to be on mission. And I think people have taken this literally at times. I know there's certain uh, sections of the religious world where people will go two by two uh, and they try to follow all of this stuff uh, exactly as it is. And we've got to think about how we understand scripture and there's, there's ways to think about it uh, as in, is this a command for all people for all time? Is this really how we're supposed to be doing church? Or is this a specific command for a particular time and place? So general commands that we can say Jesus said that we are for all believers, followers at all times, or for example, in fact, for all people, love God and love your neighbor and then go and make disciples. Those are general commands. But the commands that Jesus has here are specific for that time and place. This is an early part of his ministry. And we can kind of tell this by some of the things we learn from the other gospels, that they were only to go to Jewish people. So if we're gonna be consistent with all the other elements of these commands, then we have to only go to Jewish people. This shaking of the dust off their feet, that's a very specific thing. Uh, a friend of mine actually told me that someone who came to his door seeking to kind of convert him to some whatever it was, actually did that very thing to his surprise, actually stopped to dust, the, dust his, his shoes off his feet like, you don't want it? Okay, I'm dusting the, the, stuff, you know, the dust off my feet like Jesus said to do, right? Uh, they said they're totally dependent on God, like don't take money. Um, and, the, and they'd be dependent upon the kindness of others. They have a message that's specifically about repentance. That's the sole message, repent. The kingdom of God is here. And what they're also doing is casting out demons that Mark says that's what they're doing. So specifically what is going on here? This is not a model for missionary work. What is going on here? Well, what it is is this. These men were now to be living parables of the kingdom to the people of that day. So the things that they were doing, the things that they were saying were like parables that were pointing to the fact that the kingdom had come. They were signs that the kingdom had come and it was to be received or rejected and then they would move on. And the casting out of demons was showing that the kingdom had come in power against the powers of darkness. And so what Jesus had been doing, uh, now he is commanding his disciples to do. Uh, there's no accident there are, there are 12 disciples uh, going out here. And actually, this is the third number 12 in quick succession. For those of you who have been observant, you may have wondered why there's these, Mark puts these stories together and the number 12 occurs throughout these past few weeks we've had. There was a woman afflicted for 12 years. She's a daughter of Israel and she's gone to all of the, probably the religious people and the medical people and they've not been able to help her and Jesus heals her. She has faith in him and he heals her. There's a young girl of 12 years old and she is a synagogue leader's daughter. That is really important. We've got this kind of unclean woman who's been sick for 12 years, Jesus heals her. The synagogue ruler's daughter is 12 years old and she has died. It's almost like a picture of Israel is in this place of death and Jesus comes in and in Aramaic, the language of the people says, uh, she is only sleeping. That's kind of hopeful, right? And then raises this little girl to life. That's kind of like a picture. And now we have these 12 Jewish men traveling as messengers and actual bringers of the gospel and the kingdom 
kingdom and really particularly the kingdom of repentance, repent, demons are being cast out and they're going in a very particular way. And so what they're really representing is this renewal of Israel. So where Israel had failed to obey through time and after time, Jesus now comes and calls 12 men. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel and they had a renewed call into faithfulness and mission. And even the concept of the staff that they carry is almost like a throwback to Moses, that the staff that he had, that's about only thing they're supposed to take is, a, is a, like a shepherd's crook or some kind of staff. It's got this beautiful pictures of the Old Testament. They're like prophetic people coming with their staff into town two by two and sharing the news that the kingdom is here. So this is very specific to that time. But so what, is there anything we can learn for now though? What might we learn about how we grow as disciples? We've looked at the unbelief and the presumption that so often the church can put Jesus in a box and it's a box based on my own preferences, my own perspectives, and it can really be dangerously dangerous to exclude other people. What can we learn from the second story? Well, it really is about how we grow. And if unbelief was the tone of the first one, this is about how we grow in belief and in faith and in forward motion in, for the gospel. Uh, just this week in the soul food time that we had, uh, Rudy Tarango, one of our dear brothers at New Song, uh, he mentioned something that I had not noticed before and it's another progression. I love that we're starting to look at scripture and see patterns and things that are important to notice as Mark, being a skillful writer, he, he inserts these things and he tells the story in a particular way and some of it is very uh, instructional. And what Rudy had noticed was this progression that after the storm, they landed in this Gentile place and it seems like, at least what's mentioned, only Jesus gets out of the boat and the disciples stay behind. And Jesus has this encounter with this powerful demonic legion. And uh, then the second story we have is uh, Jairus, the synagogue leader, and uh, Jesus invites three of his friends to come and witness that profound moment of resurrection with this young girl, but only three of them. And then we hear now that Jesus goes back to his hometown with his disciples and they encounter this moment of resistance. And then the very next story is that he sends all 12 of them out without him. They're to go now uh, into the world. There's something progressive about this. There's that may be instructional for us as we learn what it means to follow Jesus. There's a real, uh, God has real intention in how he grows us and leads us to a progressive journey with him in what we're doing. Uh, there's also a relationship between obedience and faith. That's very clear here. They are told to go and they go. And, and this is the means by which they start to understand more deeply the, about the kingdom of God and they become the people they're going to become to lead the church once Jesus has been resurrected and has left them. You know, so first of all, they were simply called follow me. Jesus said, follow me, very simple command with no real idea of what that was going to mean. They may have had some ideas, once again, preconceptions, right? But they didn't, they could never have imagined where that response of obedience would take them. They were simply called to follow him. Or as that great theologian, Steve Tyler from Aerosmith said, walk this way, right? Walk this way, you guys. Uh, but thereafter, they never ceased after that point to, to be learning and growing. And this was a stretching and painful and at times dangerous adventure with Jesus. This tells us, gives us some clue, I think, into the disciples' life, that where there is presumption, 
familiar, especially in the terms of familiarity breeds uh, presumption and contempt. Faith dies and withers and the power of God is not really going to be evident among us. But where there is obedience and receptivity and kind of an expectation of challenge ahead and a willingness to engage in it, but not alone, right? Two by two or 12 by 12 or 100 by 100, it breeds faith, a growing faith through the hardship and a positive movement of the kingdom of God. And it seems then that the power of God is present and miraculous things can start to happen. You know, really the kingdom of God is progressive. The whole story of salvation throughout scripture is progressive. And there's no reason to think that now that we've arrived here, it simply stops progressing. Faith is progressive. We hope that tomorrow or next year, five years from now, we will be stronger in the faith, more mature, more able to to deal with the challenges and the, the difficult things that face us because we've been through some. You know, the kingdom is all about initiation and response. We've seen this all the way through with Jesus, that he initiates a call. And it's only as people respond that they start to understand. You really can only discover who Jesus is in the doing and the going. It's as we go and as we do, as we serve, as we obey, that we actually encounter him. You know, so faith really, a growing faith, will demand a withholding of judgment and opens to change and a determination to look past our first impressions, our first resistance, and stick with the process to a trust. You know, there's never an end to who Jesus is and how we can encounter him in our world. There's no end to that. And so don't we need to ever, never stop learning and experiencing and responding. So this is the second part that the disciples go. There's such a contrast between the first and the second, and we're most definitely to seek to gain some insight positively from the story of the disciples being sent out. You know, the first part of the story is very sad. It's a sad story, and it almost leaves us with this impression. It says that Jesus could not do many miracles, and he was uh, amazed at them for their lack of faith, and then he left and he went to the other towns and villages. And that would be tragic if it was the end of the story, but praise God, it is not the full story. The family of Jesus uh, actually progressed uh, from that place of unbelief, and it seems that at least a few of them uh, came to know and serve this person who they had known with such familiarity, they eventually came to worship him as Lord and God and became so important in the church. And one of them, his name was James. He's mentioned in the passage. And he became such a powerful leader in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, we read uh, the book of James just a, a year or two ago and studied that book. And that was a book that he wrote from that position of, of leadership. But here's the thing, in order to get to the place where they eventually ended up, the story was not finished, but in order to get to where they would be fruitful participants in the kingdom of God, they had to pass from the stability of their hometown predictability. And they had to move from this assumption, presumption of who Jesus was and they literally, in history, in the flesh, had to experience both Jesus' shocking death on the cross and then his stunning resurrection and thus moving into a new life, which now um, this, took, this Lord Jesus took central part and gave them a central purpose. And that everything else that they believed about him or imagined about themselves or their world would have to become subservient to this overarching call into the kingdom of God. 
I think this is something we need to pay strong attention to. That's why we're doing communion every week. It's very important for us to consider Jesus' death and also his resurrection every time we gather because that is the core of what we've encountered. And we can sometimes judge people in Scripture who don't recognize Jesus, but I think in the cross we see this wholesale rejection by humanity of the God who made them and who loves them. Um, and and we we think our story might end there that we have we have not followed we've not been faithful we've not been consistent, and Jesus may dust the the dust off his shoes and leave us behind. But in the cross we see that his love pursues us and it always leads to action, and that he has done everything that he needed to do for the for the door to be opened. Our stories continue to be written. We get to see our stories continue to be written with him. Uh, and it's our calling, it's our calling to say, Lord, I don't know where I'm going with you, um, but I want to follow you and I'm going to reserve my judgment. And I don't think I know everything about you, but I know the smallest part, Lord, surprise me, lead me, show me this adventure that you've called me in and let me do it with other people. And then we can look ahead with confidence despite the hardships, despite the trials, despite the days when our plans don't quite work out or... Um, things seem difficult because he is trustworthy and, and his call to follow him just reverberates throughout of all of time and history and human experience and it's persistent and it's full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. We are called to follow him, to learn, to know what it means to be faithful and to obey, to discover the riches of God that have been shown to us in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we just simply ask that you would be all that you are to us. Lord, set aside our preconceptions, our resistance, our fear, uh, our sense that we're too weak. Um, you know, there's no such thing as just a carpenter in this story, and I think we need to recognize, even in the disciples, that... They may have just been fishermen or tax collectors, but in you they became fully the people they were supposed to be and they changed the world, Lord. We want to see you meet us exactly as we are and transform us as a community. We want your kingdom to be here, to be born here, to be born in us and to progress and to move. Lord, thank you. Be all that you are for us, in us and through us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.